Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they may go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee, that you will see him, and here's the key and actually the topic of this message, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Like, like many, I, I like going to movies and every now and then you go to one that is a great one and then they, you get real excited about the sequel. And sometimes the sequel are just downers. How many know what I'm talking about? You just go to the sequel and you thought, man, they should have just left it the first one. Some of the ones that came to mind this morning was Jaws. The first Jaws is memorable, right? The first Jaws, when I was, I think many of you, I've told this, that I was, uh, I was brought up in a very strict Pentecostal church, and my grandfather basically, he, he, thought, he almost thought everything was a sin. Wearing shorts for men was a sin. Certainly going to the movie theater, that was absolutely out. So the first movie I ever went to to see at the theater was the movie Grease. And, uh, and I heard Grease 2 was a bomb. I didn't, I didn't even go see it. I, the second movie I went to see was Jaws. And so, of course, when Jaws 2 came out after all those years, you think, well, if they just pick up where they left off, they can't go too awful bad. But it, 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 didn't, it didn't work. I love Taken. I love the movie Taken. I've learned some great skills from the movie Taken. Great skills. I always tell my daughters, don't worry. I watched Taken 1, Taken 2, Taken 3. Great skills. No, no trouble. But Taken 2, I thought, was kind of a bomb. Uh, but still learn some skills. So, yeah. Some movies just flop. The ones, though, the sequels to me, well, I'm sick of the Fast and Furious. They need to quit those. We had enough sentiment. Bless Paul Walker's heart. I hope he's in heaven, but we had enough of all that. But the movies that seem to get better as they go are movies like The Lord of the Rings because they keep going someplace that's glorious, heavenly. The Chronicles of Narnia, always going someplace that brings you closer to the throne of heaven. And today I wanna, I wanna pick up, this is kind of the sequel of what was preached Friday night, which was actually the sequel of what was preached last Sunday according to plan. Because the plan was for the Jews They wanted Jesus completely eliminated, completely, of course, crucified, killed, murdered, however you want to put it, but they just want Jesus to come to an end. 
And so they laid out a plan on how Jesus could be killed. And sure enough, he was. And then Friday night, we dealt with that death and the agony of that death and the pain of that death. Milka so brilliantly sung, were you there when they crucified our Lord? There we left off on Friday night, Jesus in that place of burial. And sure enough, they take him off the cross and they bury him. And, and now it's, it's Saturday. It's the Sabbath. And as noted last week, the, the, the Jews thought that they had done the right thing and, and Jesus was rid of. But for them, it wasn't enough for Jesus just to be dead. They wanted to make sure he was eliminated. Because if Jesus was eliminated, so was the movement that Jesus seemingly was overseeing or creating. So to do that, they needed to make sure that nothing happens to that body that was put in that tomb. They didn't want it removed. Verse uh, Matthew 27, 62, it says it's the next day. It's the day of preparation. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered before Pilate and said, they said this, Sir, we remember how that imposter, because that's what Jesus was to them, an imposter, a deceiver. They said, we remember what that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Make sure he stays in there for the three days. Lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but three days is also critical. Same thing with Lazarus in the tomb. Because they believe if someone dies, there is a great possibility within three days because they believe the spirit just kind of lingers. But they believe within three days that the spirit can come back into the person and the person can be revived. But after three days, no chance. No chance. That's why the three days of Jesus being in the tomb is so critical. And so they said, make sure this thing is sealed for three days. After three days, it's not going to matter. He said, until the third day, if that doesn't happen, the disciples will go and steal Jesus away. And they'll tell people that he's risen from the dead. And the fraud of that, they said, will be worse than the first. Now, they're not making that up. It is, they are going by things that Jesus had said. He had said it to the crowds. He said it to the disciples. Matthew 20 is a good one. It says, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, talking about himself. We're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to take me. They're going to condemn me. Condemn me to death. I'm going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be crucified. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. He told them that. He told them that in Mark chapter 32. They were now on the way to Jerusalem. He was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind him were overwhelmed with fear because they knew that there was a risk of something happening in Jerusalem. So he took the 12 aside. And once again, he said, listen, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed by the leading priests, by the teachers, by the religious leaders. They're going to sentence me to die. I'm going to be hung, handed over to the Romans. They're going to mock me, spit me, flog on me, whip me, kill me. But after that, three days, I'm going to rise again. 
even though those things was repeated and they heard it time and time again, to the Jews, it only meant something because he said it and they thought the disciples would be the ones that would intervene. Remember the Jewish leaders, they thought he was an imposter anyway. They didn't even believe he was a Messiah. So in their thinking, it's not him we're worried about, but these disciples will be the ones that will pull this off. They'll be the ones that will go in there, get into that tomb, and they'll pull him out. They'll be the ones that will cause this to happen. They'll fabricate this resurrection just so they can keep this movement going. Here's the interesting thing. The irony of it all is the disciples really had no such thought. If you record, re, re, recall the stories of the disciples, they couldn't even get their heads around this. They couldn't even wrap their head around the one that they believed to be the Messiah, the Lord, the Christ, that he's even going to be killed by people who he has the lordship over. They, they couldn't wrap their heads around it. If, if you follow the stories when things was going on, these dudes was afraid. They were hiding somewhere after Jesus was killed. They didn't fully understand what was going to happen with the resurrection, the, the reality of it. As a matter of fact, some of them were still thinking it was something mystical or something figurative or something spiritual. They, they didn't really get it that it was going to be a real death and a real resurrection. They really didn't get it. That was the irony of it. But these guys go to Pilate and says, this is what we want you to do. We're concerned. And it's interesting that they say that this deception will be greater than the first. For a minute there, it took me a while to figure out what it was that they were referring to. And in all of my years of studying this, this was the first time I really figured out the deception they were talking about. And it goes back to Palm Sunday. Because remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem in that, on that triumphal entry, the people gathered together and started shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, hallelujah, the son of David. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But do you remember what the Jewish leaders said? These folks believe he's the Messiah and the whole city is going to go after him. That was the deception that they were concerned about. People are already believing he's the Messiah. If this dude disappears out of this tomb, that's going to be a worse problem than the first problem we already had. Pilate, in his wisdom on the one hand, and honestly, Pilate was an evader. On the other hand, he says, you got guards, you can go secure it yourself. You can make the tomb secure. And so they did just that, and they set guards up. Now, what takes place now is actually the resurrection itself. Even though they had done all of that, the one thing that they could not do was actually stop the resurrection from happening because the resurrection was not a work of man. The resurrection was absolutely by the power of God. They could have put the whole Jewish army in front of that tomb. It wasn't going to matter. The devil himself could have stood in front of that tomb. It wasn't going to matter. And what I like that God did, I like that he orchestrated that they set this up. I love that the scripture recorded it, that they even sent guards to guard it. 
Because God wanted to be sure that pagans, people who rejected him, people who hated him, unbelievers, he wanted them to witness the fact that the body was not stolen at all, that no one took that body from the grave. It only came out by the power of God just like he said. When Jesus died, he predicted it. None of his followers, if I could go back to them for just a moment, none of his followers to them, they thought, none of them thought this was going according to plan. Their thought was, Jesus is here. He is the Messiah. Everything's going to be made right. He's going to conquer. We're following the right man. This is a good thing. None of them thought the death at all was a good thing. So they absolutely didn't think that the burial was. As a matter of fact, they deserted Jesus. Right when it was time for him to be betrayed and taken, they deserted him. They left the Garden of Gethsemane and stood there watching Jesus getting crucified. And I don't even know if I got the right words that explain the emotion. But I would say disheartened was a word. Maybe dismay, maybe disappointment, disillusion, dispirited. All of these emotions was flooding up in them when they saw the one they trusted get taken by the hands of mere men, put into the hands of the very people that they believed the Messiah was going to liberate them from being the Romans, and watch him get crucified. So when Jesus died, they just believed that's it. He's dead. They didn't believe no way possible that this guy could rise up. There's a writer, and there's, there's several reasons for that, but there's a writer named N.T. Wright, and I love something that he said. He says, there were many messianic movements in the first century, and in every case, the would-be Messiah got crucified by Rome as Jesus did. In not one single case, do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming their hero had been raised from the dead? N.T. Wright says this, because they knew better. In other words, what N.T. Wright is saying is, why did they know better? Because dead people stay dead. That was their belief. I told this story in the first service, and I'll tell you again, I didn't write this story. I didn't make it up. I heard Ken Davis tell this story when he was here years ago uh, in Yuma. He talked about uh, two neighbors and who really didn't get along that well. And one of the neighbors had a rabbit. And one day the lady, uh, I'll, I'll call Betty, Betty's in the kitchen and she sees her German shepherd over there just shaking the life out of, the rabbit, out of the rabbit of the Smith. Just German Shepherd just shaking the life, life out of it. She grabs a broom and she goes over there and pummels her dog just to get the dog to drop the rabbit. Seeing that their neighbor, they weren't good neighbors as it was, the last thing she wanted was for her neighbors to know that their German Shepherd had killed the rabbit. So she said, I can't let this happen. The rabbit is dead, but I got to fix this so it's not laid on us. So she takes the dead rabbit into the house and she gives the dead rabbit a bath. She cleans the dead rabbit up. She gets a blow dryer and dries the dead rabbit off and just gets it all fluffy 
like a rabbit should look like. And then she goes back into the neighbor's yard. She opens up the cage and she props the rabbit up to make it look like it's just sitting in a cage alive. About an hour later, the neighbor comes home and she hears the neighbor screaming in the backyard. And she runs and says, oh my, what's happened? What's happened? What's going on? And, and the neighbor says, our rabbit, our rabbit, our rabbit died two weeks ago. We buried him and now he's back. <laughs> Nobody expects a dead rabbit to come back. Just like nobody expected a dead man to come back. Yet here we see the disciples. And now they get it. That Jesus has risen from the dead. They go to the tomb, Mark 16, 5 through 6. When they entered the tomb, they saw the young man clothed in a white robe, sitting on the right side. The women were shocked. But the angel said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. They looked in there and sure enough, the witnesses saw that the tomb was empty. But there's something more magnificent about this because there's, there's two factors that had to take place here. Besides just the empty tomb, because if they just saw an empty tomb, but Jesus was never seen, then they could just simply say that the grave was robbed. But they saw an empty tomb, and they also had an appearance of Jesus. You see, if they would have just had an appearance of Jesus, though, and said, no, we saw him alive, but if they went to the tomb and saw him laying there dead, they would have thought it was a hallucination, or they saw a vision. Both things was necessary, an empty tomb and the appearance of Jesus. And Jesus being the God that he is, when they went there, the tomb was empty. But Paul even talks about his appearance. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, I passed on to you what was most important, and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. Watch this. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just like the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. I want to leave this last line off for just a moment because as most of you know, Jesus had other brothers and the scripture believes that he had sisters. That the virgin birth absolutely was true because Christ was born by a virgin. But contrary, and I don't want to mess up anybody's faith here, Mary did have more children. One of those children was a, was a fellow named James. And throughout the scriptures, we see where his brothers oftentimes questioned him. They wondered, are you really who, who you say you are? Because mind you, uh, there were some, some things that Jesus done along the way, and I'm not encouraging you to look into all these movies about the childhood of Jesus. You can go see him, but you don't know if all that stuff happened. But the fact of the matter is we do have an account of when he was 12 years old, he was stunning the minds of the religious people. 
But all along they're saying this is the same Jesus that lived with us, same Jesus that ate with us, same Jesus that played stickball with us, the same Jesus that worked in the carpenter shop. We'll see in the scripture more than one time where even his brothers didn't even believe him. Particularly it would talk about James saying, if you really are who you say you are, why don't you go to the feast where everybody is and let everybody know who you are? Why don't you do that? Why don't you just go and prove yourself? The historical records tell us this, that James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah even all the way unto death, even all the way unto burial. He didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. But the reason Paul put it in here in this last line, there he was seen by James, is because it is clear to us and clear to Scripture that the brother who didn't believe him, who slept with him, who ate it with him, who was with him all the time, when he saw Jesus in a resurrected state, then and then he believed that he was alive. So they had the evidence of the empty tomb, and then they had the appearance of Jesus. There was nothing that could keep that truth from being possible. And I love what the angel said to the ladies. It says, now go tell his disciples, including Peter, which that alone is a message in and of itself, because you may remember the last thing that Peter saw before this day. The last thing that was in the eyes of Peter was him denying Jesus. The Lord had already told him that you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. Lord, I'm not going to deny you. I'm with you. No matter what them other fellows believe, I'm with you, Jesus. He said, you're going to deny me three times. And sure enough, three times he denied Jesus. And the scripture says the last sight we have of Peter is him weeping because he heard the cock crow and he knew that the scripture was fulfilled. And the truth was he had denied the Lord. The rest of the writings of Peter or the rest of the days after Jesus's, uh, the day he saw Jesus crucified or ran out of the room, we see nothing of Peter. There's talk about the other disciples, but nothing of Peter. The other disciples are in rooms trying to figure out what's going on, but nothing of Peter. Why? Because Peter was so ashamed that the last thing that happened was him denying the Lord. So for him to get word that Jesus has risen from the dead, come on. First of all, he's dealing with the fact, I got to deal with what I've already just went through. I'm not going to set myself up for more. I'm not even going to take a chance to find out. But then he says, go tell Peter, I'm going to meet him in Galilee just like I told you. I'm coming back. I'm going to prove that I'm coming back. You're not finding nothing in this tomb, but you go to Galilee, and there you'll find the resurrected Lord. Can you say amen? It wasn't long after that that these fellows realized there was a twist to this that they didn't expect because on the one hand, they had an expectation of a resurrection. I dealt with this a little bit in the first service. The Jews had no issues with the resurrection primarily, except for the Sadducees, and I'll say it again, that's why they're sad, you see, because they were Sadducees who didn't believe in a resurrection. But the Jews primarily believed in a resurrection, but they believed that resurrection happened in mass, that everybody got raised from the dead at the same time. You see, from the faith of Abraham, They were taught that there was a God who we believed in, who one day will make all things right for us. 
and all of us will appear with him together. Job even talked about it in his writings. Daniel even talked about it in Daniel chapter 12, that there would be a resurrection for all of the Jews. They believed that to be in mass. They knew that humanity was in a mess. They knew the world was in a mess. They knew because of sinfulness, we're all jacked up. We're all twisted. We got sin. We got sickness. We got disease because of mankind's sinfulness. So they had a belief that the resurrection was going to happen. And the only way that the world could get fixed, it could not get fixed by, by men. It had to get fixed by God. So they, they, they believed there was going to be a resurrection of the Jews. And when this God who's perfect and this God who's righteous, this God who's justice is going to make things right. So no matter how bad the world is, they believed God was going to re resurrect all of them and they would experience healing. They would experience justice. They would experience a wholeness like they didn't ever have before. But they believed that to be in mass. So even the disciples had the same belief. We don't have an issue of a resurrection, but we believe it's going to be everybody. And I'll give you one more verse to prove it. You remember when Lazarus was dead and, and when Jesus finally got there, Martha said, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said to Martha, well, don't you believe he'll rise again? And she says, of course, Jesus, he'll rise again in the end days. You following me? Because they believe in the end days, at the end of history, God was going to resurrect all the Jews and everything would be made right. But nothing about their teaching said that one person can be resurrected from the dead. I hope I didn't lose anybody. I didn't lose you, right? They, they're thinking everybody's going to get resurrected. But here's a twist. One guy is resurrected. That's kind of like, I, I, I'll just carry this on. You know I'm a huge Raiders fan. I mean, huge Raiders fan. We got that close to winning the Super Bowl last year. I mean, that close. We were that close. And the faith that I got in the Raiders has now moved over to the Dodgers winning the World Series. Same faith. I mean, we just, we just, we going all the way to the World Series. I'm, I'm taking Raider faith, I'm expanding it in Jesus' name, and it's Dodger faith. And now we're pushing them Dodgers all the way. But that would be like, that would be like, so the, it's a team effort. Everybody wins. It would be like Clayton Kershaw celebrating that he won the World Series, but not the rest of the team. It's a team thing. They thought the resurrection was a team thing. But now they're coming to the conclusion, this is a fascinating twist, that this resurrection is not something we got to wait for in mass. This one man, Jesus Christ, has resurrected from the dead. Now catch this. That means if Jesus resurrected from the dead, that everything that we believed can take place because of a resurrection is now possible. If I have to wait for everybody to get resurrected to be healed because Jesus resurrected, I can be healed right now. If I had to wait for all the Jews to be resurrected for things to be made right, if Jesus resurrected from the dead, I can be made right right now. If I got to wait for all the Jews to be resurrected for forgiveness, since Jesus resurrected from the dead, I can be forgiven right now. It's not a team thing. It's a one man thing and it's Jesus Christ can you shout hallelujah and so now they got the proof all of a sudden they realize this Jesus has done just like he told us he would do 
Now, I'm going to tell you this. There's all kind of things you can do, all kind of things you can read, all kind of things you can check out. Great movie out now called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Fantastic stuff. Good material, good writing. He done a great job. You can find all kind of stuff to believe or get the evidence that the resurrection really happened. That's not my job today. It ain't my job today to convince you that the resurrection really happened. Honestly, I know the facts. It's all there. The Bible gives me the facts. It's all there. My life witnessed to the facts. It's all there. Here's the issue now. Since it's a fact, no, no more if. No, no more if it's a fact that Jesus rose from the dead, which is, which is fascinating to me that people would even question some things that we got the evidence for. Folks will, folks will believe in things that they don't even, I mean, folks is reading novels and books and stories, listening to all kind of fake news with no evidence and living their life based on no evidence and fake news. And here we got the real true deal, the real deal that can be proven. So here's the issue. It's not if there was a resurrection. Since it was a resurrection, what you going to do about it? Let, let, me, let me just get ghetto because I came from Yuma High School down on the north end. What, what, what you going to do about it? Since there was a resurrection, what you going to do about it? Because that's the issue. That's the question. And the scripture helps us. The scripture tells us what to do since there is a resurrection. And that's absolutely this. Believe that Jesus was resurrected indeed for you. Listen to this. I love Romans 10, 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, hear this, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You ought to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Turn to your neighbor and says, that's talking about you. You will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God, and it's by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. Believing that Jesus was raised from the dead. I confess him as my Lord and Savior. Believe in my heart he was raised, and now I'm saved. Here's the second thing that confession is made, that belief is made, then just become a disciple. That's following Jesus. There's nothing spooky about it. There's nothing scary about it. Just following Jesus. Let me, let me tell you something. I've been, I've been serving the Lord for many years of my life. I cannot tell you one occasion in my life, not once, where following Jesus has hurt me. Not one occasion. Now listen, has there been some things by obedience unto God, it's some things in my life I just did not want to obey, just did not want to do. But I'm telling you, following Jesus has always laid, led to places of safety and fresh pastures and peace and joy and love and hope. Becoming a disciple. There's a, there's a passage in Matthew 27, 57. talks about this rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. And the scripture says that he was, well, we know he was part of the Sanhedrin. That was 70 men. The Sanhedrin was 70 men that was like the religious courts of the day. They made all of the laws and the rules and all the governing over the Jewish affairs, kind of like our Supreme Court, but they, had, they, had, they, they, they handled civic affairs, but also spiritual affairs, religious affairs. Joseph of Arimathea was one of those Sanhedrin. 
Those fellows was steeped into Judaism, steeped into religion. It was a, it was a 70 of the Sanhedrin with the chief priest leadership that declared that Jesus was an imposter. The scripture tells us that Joseph, even though he was part of that 70, was a follower of Jesus, but he was a secret disciple. Matthew says that he had become a follower. Mark says he was a secret disciple. Luke, I also believe, says he was a secret disciple or had the courage to come forth. I want you to catch something about this fellow. He was a man that was a rich man. He was a man that was part of the Sanhedrin. He was a man that had status. He was a man that had uh, a, um, a recognition of being a great man in the community. And when Jesus died, now mind you, this is even before the resurrection. He had came to the conclusion that this is the Son of God. And if he is the Son of God, there's no reason for me to live in secret any longer. There's no reason for me to live in the shadows. If I believe what I believe, and Jesus is who he says he is, and he's proven who he says he is, which was even emphatic in his death, uh, uh, Joseph says, I'm coming public. I'm coming public with my faith. There's no reason for me to be a secret disciple. I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, and I don't care who knows. He sacrificed his prestige. He sacrificed his position. He sacrificed his riches. He took a risk on being cut off by people because he came forth to say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a disciple. That's the only cost, really. The only cost is that you're willing to say, hey, I, I, I don't care if I lose a little prestige and a little status. I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. I'm going to make that commitment. I'm going to be a follower of him. If this guy can tell us after living on the earth three, 33 and a half years that they were going to kill him, and he's going to be buried, and he's going to rise again, and he's yet alive, then who else is more believable than that? That means everything else Jesus said is true. I want to share this story with you. A gentleman by the name of John Ortberg, he's a, he pastors actually in Menlo Park in the Bay Area. He tells this story about a friend of theirs. He said they had spent a lot of time with this uh, lady, this friend, and the whole time they were friends, though, she just lived a life apart from God. But then she started realizing over a period of time that she really had a lot of self-sufficiencies that became insufficiencies. She realized she had a lot of pride. She realized that she was having a hard time overcoming some of the woundings and some of the hurts that had taken place in her life. Had a hard time forgiving people. Just a hard time of dealing with life in the manner that life is. And of course, he's a pastor, so consequently over a period of time, over a period of years, sharing with her about God and about serving him. And she said that she really needed to get more information about God. And so he writes that she spent a year studying God and asking questions, reading the Bible, reading material. Eventually, after that year, she came to the conclusion that it wasn't information that she needed. She didn't lack information anymore. She realized her issue was commitment. She realized her issue was making a commitment to what she discovered about the God of the Bible, about the Christ who died and rose again. He said that even through process, even when she declared that, 
she still didn't surrender her life to God. But then she was starting to lean in on the resurrection and made a decision. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then that changes everything. So he said that she said she wanted to confess her sins and give her life to Christ and start a new life. But she said she really wanted that change to be clear. So even after talking with him that day, she said, I got one more thing I need to do. I really need this to be clear. He says that she went home and she stood in her kitchen and she stared at the threshold between her kitchen and the living room. And she says, I, I, I'm going to make this confession to my friends and church or go to church or do whatever, whatever I got to do to make my confession public. But she said, God, first, I want to make this commitment to you. He said she looked at that threshold between her living room and the kitchen. And she said, God, when I step across that line, I want you to know that I'm leaving my old life behind. I'm leaving behind my old sin. I want to be forgiven. I want to be your child. I want Jesus to be my forgiver and my friend and my leader. And she walked across that line. And then she said to them, I made the biggest step I've ever taken in my life. I've made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a relationship with God. It's not a matter of questions. It's not about a matter of doubts. The thing that I'm going to remember is I made that commitment. I took a step that I will never go back on again. That's discipleship. That's following Jesus. That's the cost of making a commitment that I'm going to follow him. And he absolutely will be my Lord and Savior. And once you do that, I'm telling you from here on, everything about life is a resurrection moment. Now, I'm talking to you from my heart. Everything about life from then on becomes a resurrection moment. Yes, I can look forward to the resurrection to come. As a matter of fact, to finish that story with Martha, says, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know he'll rise again when everyone else rises on the last day. He says, I am the resurrection of the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me, listen to this, will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? She said, yes, Lord. I've always believed that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who come into the world from God. That's a resurrection that's yet to come, but that also speaks of a resurrection that begins right now. Listen to what Jesus says. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm going to tell you something, church. I have faced bad news in my life like a whole lot of people. And if it wasn't for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that first of all assured me of a resurrection to come, but the resurrected Lord that's living in my life, I'm telling you, like a whole lot of other folks, I'd have jumped off a bridge. I'd have jumped out of a window. Because life can crush you. Life can crush you. Am I talking to the right church? Life can send you twisting and turning and tumultuous and upside down. It might have been some of you who walked in here today have no idea what's next. You feel like you're on a roller coaster. You feel like you're flipping upside down, spinning around in circles. You hope somewhere down the line this ride is going to land. Or you hope somewhere down the line this is just a nightmare and I'm going to wake up. I'm telling you, there is no waking up 
unless there's a resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. And I say that to people, to the, to the elderly people who are frail in their health and don't want to live in fear. I'm here to tell you there's a Christ that resurrects you. The husband who's, whose wife is left and you feel betrayed and you feel alone. You don't have to live like a loser. There's a resurrection in your life through Christ Jesus. Or parents who've been frightened they, or, or have a depressed child or a child with an addiction and you live with the weight and the burden and the blame of all of that. I'm here to tell you there's a resurrection of life for you. That's not how life has to end. Or the anxious worker who's afraid that they're going to lose their job. I'm telling you, you don't have to live in that fear and anxiety. There's a resurrection of life. There's a resurrection of life. Or the one who's guilt-ridden with their sin or their addiction and they're hiding in the shadows. You don't have to live that way. There is a resurrection to your life. Or the lonely person who just longs to be loved. I'm here to tell you, there's a resurrection for your life. Yeah, we're looking forward for the resurrection to come. But I'm going to tell you, every day of my life, I live with the resurrection. And I'm no different than the rest of you. Listen, I've been through divorce, and I'm telling you, I still cry at night. I've had to walk my children through things. I still cry at night. But every single day when I wake up and put my feet on the ground, I thank God for a resurrection life. Because that's the only life that's worth living. That's the only life that's worth living is a resurrection in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody stand if you would. Prayer team, come. We're going to go into a song of worship. The altars are going to be open. There's a few things we can do for you today before we close this service out. And I want y'all to know I'm, I'm ending just a little bit early, so I got some credit coming. Got a little bit of credit. But there's a few things that we can, that we can pray for you for. You, you might be one of those ones. I, I don't know entirely what's happening in your life. But you might be one of those ones just like many of the skeptics that just wasn't convinced. But today, the Spirit of God convinced you these folks aren't doing what they're doing for nothing. What I'm experiencing in my life, in my heart, in my mind is not for nothing. There's, I'm, I'm being drawn. I'm being called. I'm being tugged by something in my heart and my mind. I'm telling you, it's a resurrected Lord. And, and he's just convincing you that he's alive and he wants you. He wants you to give your life to him and he wants to be in your life. If you come, we'll just pray with you. Maybe you're one that's in those situations where, yeah, you know the Lord, but but honestly, you just, you just feel like some of these things in life are just overwhelming you. You can come. We'll pray for you. You'll be renewed. You'll be refreshed. Maybe there's some things of concern. Maybe some things of doubt. Maybe some things of worry. Some things of stress. The scripture says when two or three join together, man, he's in the midst. Something powerful happens. Something amazing happens. You, you, you're just basically coming along, being part of a family that's going to come along you and say, man, we're praying. We know what God can do. He's a savior. He's a Lord. He's a resurrector. He's able to heal your life. He's able to do some marvelous things. And you can come. Maybe you're sick, need to be healed. We'll pray for you. Maybe you've given your life to Christ and need to be baptized. You can let us know. We'll baptize you. Whatever it is, if you want to make that commitment for Jesus, today is the day. You can do just that. I'm going to Ask everybody to bow their heads. I'm going to pray. I do want to pray a prayer for those of you that are here today and you said, you know, I, 
today is the day I heard the story of that lady you just gave and, and honestly that's where I am I got the information I just need to make the commitment I want to pray for you so if you're here and you send I, I get it I hear you I really today is the day I want to commit my life to Jesus I'm not going to ask you to come up here right now I'm not going to ask you to embarrass yourself at this moment if you feel like that that wouldn't be embarrassing although it wouldn't be but what I want you to do though is take a step of commitment and just lift your hand. I'll pray for you right where you are. If you say, I want to make that commitment. I want to make that commitment. I know there's some stuff I need to just get some, some work through and answers to and maybe figure out how this is all going to affect my life. But I am absolutely convinced that I want Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Just raise your hand. I'll pray for you right where you are. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you, man. Blessings to you. God bless you back there. Thank you. Father, out of the, the hands that I saw, four or five, there could have been more. They have taken the first step. The first step is beyond what they've taken before to make that commitment that Jesus, I want to follow you. They may not have got it all figured out. There may be some things that they got to work through. They want to see maybe even what all this means. But what they are saying by lifting up their hand to you is then I, I surrender and I really do want my life to go from here knowing that I need you. I'm asking everybody to pray with me. Father, I extend my hand to you as an open confession that I want Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I thank you for the death of your son Jesus. Him dying for my sins and him being raised again was for my resurrection. Today I want to start a new life. I want to live a new life. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.